From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? Doing well. Doing well. We it, autumn has hit Northern California. It's nice and cool, and leaves are turning color finally after um, months of you know triple digit weather. Yeah. So um, so we're happy. I'm hoping some of my trees are going to recover. So after all this heat, yeah, <laughs> I uh, I wish I could say the same about Florida right now, but I can't. It's still normal. <laughs> Normal, hot, miserable Florida. Uh, well, well, winter will be there soon enough. Oh, yes. The, <laughs> so. the two days of winter. <laughs> yes. Well, well, we have a, a very special episode of Connecting with Walt today. Upon receiving the Freedoms Foundation at Valley Forge, George Washington Medal of Honor Award from General Dwight D. Eisenhower as Ambassador of Freedom for the United States in 1963, Walt Disney said of himself, Actually, if you could see close in my eyes, the American flag is waving in both of them, and up my spine is glowing this red, white, and blue stripe. Walt's patriotism for the United States and all it represents was present at an early age and was reflected throughout his actions, personally and professionally in film, Disneyland, and his desire to improve society through his experimental prototype community of tomorrow, Epcot the City. To commemorate Veterans Day in the United States and Remembrance Day in Canada, both observed on November 11th. Craig and I invited Disney historian and author David Lesjack to join us to talk about Walt Disney's service during World War I. David specializes in researching and writing about pre-1945 Disney history, with an emphasis on the 1930s and the war years. As a consultant at the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, he helped museum staff design the layout and content of the three display cases in Gallery 6, The War Years. His recent museum work has included the installation of a Disney World War II-themed display in a local municipal museum near his residence and an exhibit of Disney insignia images with the city of Irvine, California. David is the author of two books, Service with Character, the Disney Studio, and World War II, which examines Walt Disney's contributions to World War II on the home front and the front line, and In Service of the Red Cross, Walt Disney's Early Adventures, which explores Walt's service as a 17-year-old volunteer driver with the Red Cross in France at the end of World War I. And that is the topic of this episode. David, welcome to the Connecting with Walt podcast. Hello, Michael. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. You're welcome. It's great to talk to you again. Yes, indeed. Um, it's been far too long. It has. It has. Now, now let's start out by providing some background about World War I, also known as the First World War, 
the Great War or the War to End All Wars. It was a global war originating in Europe that lasted from July 28, 1914 to November 11, 1918. More than 70 million military personnel, including 60 million Europeans, were mobilized in one of the largest wars in history. Over 9 million combatants and 7 million civilians died as a result of the war. By the end of the war or soon after, the German Empire, Russian Empire, Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the Ottoman Empire ceased to exist. National borders were redrawn, with several independent nations restored or created, and Germany's colonies were parceled out among the victors. During the Paris Peace Conference of 1919, the Big Four, Britain, France, the United States, and Italy, imposed their terms in a series of treaties. The League of Nations was formed with the aim of preventing any repetition of such a conflict. This effort failed. An economic depression renewed nationalism, weakened successor states, and feelings of humiliation, particularly in Germany, eventually contributed to the start of World War II. So, David, how did World War I affect daily life in the United States? Well, I think initially not too much because, you know, your president, President Wilson, at the beginning, he actually wanted to keep the United States out of the war. And I think public opinion was fairly evenly split uh, when the war broke out, like you said, on July the 28th. But then that sort of changed as word got back to the North American continent about some of the atrocities that were happening. And then, especially after the sinking of the passenger liner, the Lusitania, in 1915. And so basically, in April 1917, um, America finally declared war on Germany. And um, although America was sort of late getting involved militarily, um, American troops who were part of the American Expeditionary Force arrived on the Western Front um, in the summer of 1918. So prior to American involvement in the war, I don't think, you know, it really had too much of an impact on everyday American life. It wasn't really until the uh, the, the draft came about um, where, where, you know, young men between the ages of 18 and 30, and then, uh, or sorry, 20 to 30, and then I think it was lowered to 18 to 45. Uh, it wasn't until people really were being drafted, I think, that the war started to have an effect on, on Americans. Yeah, now World War One began when Walt Disney was 12 years old. Uh, so most of his teenage years were during World War One. So uh, did the war have any impact on him and his family? I, I don't really think so, other than the fact that, that both he had two brothers that served in the military during World War One. Uh, Roy served in the Navy, and Raymond say, uh, served in the in the Army. Um, but other than the fact that that he had two brothers that had enlisted, I don't I don't really think the war had too much of an impact on him um, from you know from the home front at least. You know there wasn't rationing like there was in World War II, and and there wasn't really a lot of propaganda per se. So I don't I don't think it really had much of an impact other than he had two siblings that were serving. Mm-hmm. Now, Walt was in your book. You tell us that you know Walt was passionate about enlisting, even though he was underage. So what fueled his passion for wanting to join the military? Uh, that's, you know, that, that's a good question. I think, I think World War I eventually became this, this great patriotic war. And, you know, to serve was the thing to do. And his two brothers had, had voluntarily enlisted, like I said. You know, Roy went into the Navy and Raymond went into the Army. And he looked up to his brothers, especially Roy. And I think he really yearned, he yearned to do the same thing. He, he just wanted to become involved. 
And, you know, I had access, Diane Disney Miller, Walt's daughter, the late Diane Disney Miller, um, allowed me to use the, the Pete Martin interviews that, that Pete Martin had done in, in 1956. And, um, you know, I had 24 hours worth of, of taped interviews that I was given access to. And, and it's interesting because when he's talking about World War One, he told Pete Martin in the interview that he wanted to join because if he had grandchildren, this was his thinking at the time when he was 17, if he'd had grandchildren, he wanted to be able to tell them that he wasn't a slacker and that he had served his country in, in the so-called Great War. So I, I just think it was, you know, there's this huge wave of patriotism in the United States, and I think he just sort of got caught up in that patriotic fervor, so to speak. And, and you know, as we learned later in life, Walt, once Walt said to set his his eyes on a on a goal, he was he was relentless in the pursuit of that goal. So. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Now Walt idolized his older brother Roy, and you know, something that would carry through throughout his life. And Roy served in the Navy during the war, as you mentioned. Uh, did Roy share many of his military experiences? You know, stories of those with um, his family. Um, not a lot. There were a few that came out, um, which I'll, I'll get into a sec. If I can just backtrack a bit, you know, a lot of people don't know about Roy and his military service, so if I can maybe just, you know, say a few words about that. Oh, absolutely. So, so Roy enlisted on June the 5th, 1917. Um, he joined up with his buddy Mitch Francis, and Mitch Francis, his sister was Edna, who Roy eventually married. And so the two of them joined up on June the 5th, 1917, and it actually turns out, I did some research, you know, Roy worked at the Kansas City National Bank, and there were 42 bank employees, so Roy, Mitch, and 40 other guys actually um, either were enlisted or drafted. And so when, when Roy and Mitch signed up, um, you know, they, they processed their papers, they were sent home to await orders. About two months later, he was directed to report to the Navy's Great Lakes Navy Trainer naval training station which was on the shores of lake michigan um, he went there for five months did his basic training um, and then in april 1918 he was um, told to report to a ship called uss houston now uss houston has an interesting story it started life as a german civilian cargo ship with the name liebenfels and that boat was in port at charleston when the war broke out and the crew decided to stay in the United States during the conflict because ships of any of the combatants in the war were fair game on the high seas. And so the Liebenfels crew, they feared, you know, if we leave Charleston, we're putting our lives in danger, um, so we're going to stay in the United States. And they actually stayed there for three years until 1917, when America finally entered the war, the crew were directed by the German government to scuttle the ship. So they scuttled the ship in harbor, um, so the American government came along, they salvaged the boat, the, the boat was claimed by the federal government, and it was rechristened as the Houston. And that was the ship that Roy served on. And, and basically the purpose of that ship, it, it just transported supplies to Europe from the United States. Now Roy was actually aboard Houston for three of her four transatlantic crossings. And one story that he did tell uh, to his son uh, Roy Edward was he recalled riding out this, this Atlantic storm, this really violent Atlantic storm that was just pitching the, the boat in the water, huge waves, and the sea was so violent it wrenched a 57-pound iron compass ball from its housing on the ship's bridge. And Roy said this giant ball that, you know, it just rolled back and forth as the sea, and you couldn't stop it. You know, it just rolled back and forth, smashing into everything that was on the bridge. And then Roy also told his son, um, that he had, shipped, he had seen ships come under attack by enemy submarines, and he was sort of impressed with the terror of it all. 
Um, Roy's service ended, his last voyage aboard Houston, uh, was a, a delivery of coal to the Bremerton Naval Yard up in, in Washington State. And um, I know that Roy did record his memories about his naval service, and um, he said he went back. It's in Bob Thomas's book, Building a Company. He went back later in life, and he, he reread the stories that he had written, and he said they were just so embellished, he, he couldn't believe what he had written down. And unfortunately, um, those notes have never been found. Roy's diary of his service has never been found. It's sort of been lost in a... I guess maybe a box in the garage, you know, who knows Who knows what happened to it. He, he just never, he, he could never remember where he put those notes. Um, Roy was discharged from, he, he actually, when the war ended, Roy was granted an early discharge. Um, he was released from the Navy on February the 4th, 1919. Um, he had actually begun his naval career as an apprentice seaman. He was promoted to seaman second class, then seaman, and he mustered out as a quartermaster, quartermaster third class, and he'd actually served 507 days in the Navy, and then when he when he mustered out, he just returned to his his job um, um, at the bank in Kansas City. One interesting thing about when he was going to Great Lakes for his naval training at the beginning, he actually met Walt Walt on the on the train platform. Walt wanted to see his brother off to to the training center, so Walt stopped by and visited with Roy on the train platform while Roy was re- waiting to to ship out to Great Lakes. And what was quite interesting was um, one of the um, officers that was in charge of these new recruits, he came along and started screaming out, you know, form up, form up, everybody form up, you know, stand to attention, make the ranks, that sort of thing. And then he walks by Walt, and Walt's just sort of lazing there because he's, he hasn't enlisted or anything. And he goes, what's, you know, this naval officer says, you know, what's the matter? Didn't you hear me? I, I said, I said, fall in. You know, he's screaming at Walt, fall in. Well, Walt thought this was the greatest thing in the world because that sort of furthered his belief that, hey, yeah, I'm old enough. I can get into this. I want to be a part of this. And it was sort of this validation that, that a military officer had seen him as potential material. So Roy had an interesting interesting history in the Navy. Unfortunately, I think he just didn't tell too many people about what, it, what had happened. And like I said, the notes he had written about what he had experienced have sort of been lost to history. That's too bad. Yeah. And but, you know, and it's funny because I think that was a quality of the generation who fought World War One and World War Two. They really didn't talk a lot about it. They after the war, they just came home and carried on with their lives. They were very, yeah. very humble. And I, I found mm-hmm. that I do a lot of um, or I used to do a lot of writing about World War Two and I used to write for World War Two magazine. Um, they had about a quarter of a million subscribers when I was writing for them, and I would write cover stories and feature stories, and I had my own column, and I interviewed probably 40 to 50 veterans, and it was really interesting. You really had to draw these people out and draw their experiences out, the servicemen and women. They were very um, humble about their experiences, and they didn't really think they had done, for the most part, most of them thought they really hadn't done very much, but, you know, they. I, I think that was just their their upbringing, you know, and I, I really found it too with Americans and Canadians, you know, I approached a lot of Canadian servicemen and, and they just didn't want to talk about their service. They just wanted to keep it private. And um, like you said, I just think that was the generation. It was, you know, the humbleness of, you know, we had a job to do. We went out and did it and it's no big deal, mm-hmm. but it was a big deal, right? Oh, absolutely. I, I they, they certainly preserved freedom around the world. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Now, in the summer of 1918, Walt reluctantly accepted that he would not be able to enlist, so he quit his job at the Ozell Jelly Factory and took a job 
as a letter carrier with the Postal Service. And ironically, Walt had one of the most harrowing experiences of his life whilst on that job on September 4th, 1918. And you, you take us through it in, in your book. Can you tell our listeners about the events of that day? Yeah, sure. So so Walt got, a, Walt got a job working out of the main post office, which was located in the federal building in downtown Chicago. And, you know, like every postal employee, his job consisted, you know, he sorted mail, delivered mail, picked up mail in the Loop District, which was this, this district in downtown Chicago. Um, you know, sometimes he used a horse and wagon, which was common for that, that time frame. There were still horse and wagons on, on major, you know, American city streets. Sometimes he drove a truck, a mail truck, which is, which is an important fact, actually, because his ability to drive is one of the reasons that he was eventually hired by the Red Cross, because they were looking for drivers at the time. Um, so on, like you said, on September 4th, 1918, um, he almost became the victim of a domestic terrorist attack. Um, he was off at three o'clock and just as he's, he's leaving his office, he's, he's walking out towards the West Adams street lobby entrance and all of a sudden, boom, there was a, a very large explosion and a bomb had detonated. And I just pulled out a quote here from, uh, the Pete Martin interview. So this is, this is Walt, um, explaining that experience or describing that experience. He said, you know, quote, I was in the post office. I just got through sorting my mail or finishing my route. I was walking out, going out a certain entrance when it was bombed. It was right in the lobby when, boom, this thing went off, and here comes the dust shooting out and everything. That was the way I went out every night. I missed that darn thing by about three minutes. So the bomb was pretty, the bomb was pretty powerful. You know, the bomb... Um, the force of the bomb shattered every window on the first three floors of the two buildings across the street, and it was total destruction in the area. There was a dead horse. There was a mangled streetcar. There were shards of glass everywhere. Um, the bomb killed four people and wounded more than 75 others. And it turns out that one of Walt's co-workers, a fellow named uh, William Wheeler, he was amongst the dead. He was one of the four people that were killed. And there was a big investigation into the bombing, and, and um, authorities initially thought the bomb was linked to the associates of Bill Haywood. Now, Bill Haywood was the general secretary treasurer of the Industrial Workers of the World, and that group, the group that he headed up, they were opposed to America's entry into World War I. Haywood just happened to be in the federal building at the time. He had been sentenced to 20 years in prison for obstructing the government's war program. So he was in the building. So investigators initially thought, well, maybe this was somebody trying to get revenge on the federal government for sentencing this leader of that group to prison. Um, the big investigation happened. No members of Haywood's organization were ever charged with the bombing. And as a matter of fact, no one was ever convicted, and the true motive for the attack was never uncovered. Um, and as a matter of fact, Haywood, um, he got out on bail. He fled to Russia, and he lived in Russia until he died. But, um, you know, Walt, Walt himself said he was about three minutes away from, uh, you know, being enveloped by that explosion. So, you know, thank goodness for everybody. Uh, he was late or delayed or whatever, and, and uh, he, he missed being in the area at the time. Yeah. And, and then a, a parade the very next day in Chicago that was hosted by the Red Cross may have been the spark that led Walt to realize his dream of serving his country in the war. Yeah, you know... Um, Having his two brothers in the military wasn't the only reason behind Walt's desire to join the military. Um, like I said earlier, there was this real hysteria surrounding the war effort, and it was all around him. 
you know, Americans were subjected to this constant barrage of patriotic music, parades, public displays, urging, you know, if you're an able-bodied man, you know, do your duty, enlist. And, and as Pete Martin interviewed, Disney recalled, you know, quote, they used to blow bugles and it made something go up and down your back. You know, World War I was famous for volunteerism, not only for military service, but also civic service as well for organizations like the Red Cross. Um, and then you have to keep in mind, too, that, you know, two weeks after America declared war on Germany, George Michael Cohen penned the lyrics to Over There. And, and that song has been called one of the most su- successful propaganda songs of the war, and it became a huge hit. There was like something like two million copies of the song's sheet music, and a million records were sold by the war's, the war's end. And that song really helped fan the flames of, of nationalism on the home front as well. So like you said, there was this large Red Cross parade that took place on September 5, 1918, and it was one of many that Walt probably had witnessed. It was, it was sponsored by the Chicago chapter of the Red Cross, and it was huge. It, you know, I, I was reading um, newspaper accounts, and there was like a, over 1,000 people in this parade. And so, you know, all the flags and the bands and the music and, you know, just this whole fever of, of whipping everybody into this nationalistic uh, state of mind. Um, Walt also recalled that there was um, um, this fife and drum corps that, re- that paraded by his building, you know, like on a weekly basis. You know, they had pianos on the trucks and pretty girls and flags, and, you know, it was very patriotic. And, and Walt said that, you know, the people in, in that little fife and drum corps parade, they would taunt those along the procession that were watching the parade, and they'd be shouting out, oh, you know, uh, how, how, come, how come you're not enlisting? Are you a slacker? What's the matter with you? Come on up and join. You know, we dare you. What's the matter? You know, are you afraid? And so, you know, they were really goading onlookers in, into enlisting. And then, you know, around that time frame, um, Walt's friend, Russell Mass, who was working at the post office with Walt, he saw one of these spectacles, one of these parades. And, and, you know, he came running into where Walt was working in the post office. He was out of breath and he was all excited. He said, well, hey, you know, there's this ambulance unit forming to go overseas. And, you know, they don't care how old you are. And, you know, let's go. This is our, this is our opportunity. This is our chance. Well, you know, Walt, he, he wanted to get overseas, so this really piqued his interest right away. And, you know, here he's thinking, oh, yeah, finally, he's got this avenue to get overseas, and this dream he had to get to Europe and be part of the, the war, it was, it was in play. It was in play now. So it was, it was quite an exciting moment when Mass burst into the room and, and told him about this opportunity. Yeah, now, how did the requirements for service in the Red Cross differ from the requirements for service in the Army? Well, the Red Cross was volunteer, and initially the Army was volunteer, and then they went to, uh, to, uh, to the draft. Um, Red Cross wanted you to be at least 17, but they were taking folks who were under and over the draft age. So um, the draft was called the Selective Service Act of 1917, and initially, like I mentioned earlier, they, they took men between the ages of 21 to 30, and then later 18 to 45, while the Red Cross was taking people that were 17, and it was purely a, a volunteer organization. There was no, no draft involved in serving with the, uh, with the Red Cross. Yeah, but Walt was 16 at this time, so he was still too young to serve in the Red Cross. So how did he get around these requirements? Well, do you want the short answer or the long <laughs> answer? The short answer is forgery. Yes. <laughs> Plain and simple. Um, he met the requirements by an act of forgery. So, so basically the way it played out was um, once, once Walt and Roy had this in, so, you know, join the Red Cross and get overseas, they went to the Red Cross recruiting office and they applied for duty. 
Now, what was interesting was they didn't use their real names. They, they applied under assumed names, and they called themselves the non-existent St. John Brothers. And I've speculated that they've used, they used St. John because the most venerable order of St. John was this royal order of chivalry that was established you know, many years prior. I think it was about 1830, 1831. And they had a mission, the order had a mission of preventing sickness and injury. So I'm thinking one of these two guys, either Walter or Russell Mass, and knowing Walt's sense of, sense of humor, I would say Walt, they probably thought, well, Red Cross, preventing sickness and injury, St. John, the Venerable Order, let's apply as the St. John Brothers. And so I think that was probably an inside joke to the both of them. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, um, they completed their paperwork, they dropped off their applications, but then they still had to figure out how to complete the paperwork because they were both one year shy of the minimum age of 17. And Walt needed a valid passport as well. So he went to work on his mother. Um, His father, Elias, was vehemently against the idea. He wouldn't sign any permissions. He said it was like signing my son's death warrant. I'm not going to do it. And Walt's mother, Flora, countered, you know, well, he's determined. And once he sets his mind on something, he's going to do it. And you know, I'd rather know where he was than have him run away. And then the other thing, too, was he, he wasn't joining the military, so he's probably not going to die on a battlefield, so that's a good thing. Um, but despite her arguments in favor, Elias wouldn't budge off of his opinion. But Flora acquiesced and thought, you know what? The kid's got an adventurous streak. You know, he's going to see a part of the world he probably never get to see anyhow. And she agreed to, she agreed to sign the paperwork. There's only one problem. Walt's still only 16 years old, right? He's born in 1901. That makes him 16. He needs to be 17. So what does he do? His mom fills out the form in the kitchen. She signs for her husband. She signs her name on it. She signs for Walt. And then she writes down, you know, my son, Walter Elias Disney. He was born on December 5th, 1901. She puts the application down, turns her back, and good old Walt, in the blink of an eye, picks up the fountain pen and with one quick stroke changes the number one in 1901 to a zero to read 1900, thus making him the required age. (laughs) And it's really neat because um, a facsimile of that affidavit is actually on display at the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, and you can actually see where where the one was changed into a zero. Um, Yes, I've seen that, and I thought, yeah, you know, you'd have to really not use much of a discerning eye to um, see that it's been altered. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you can look at it. It's like, okay, there it is. It's sort of plain, plain as day, right? So the good news is, you know, um, that form, he, he, he was able to get a passport. And what they did was they went back down Mass and, and Disney went back to the, uh, the Red Cross recruiting office and replaced their, their falsified application forms uh, with the real ones. And, you know, guess what? They were accepted into the Red Cross. Yeah, and so Walt's dream of service was realized on September 25th, 1918. He reported for duty at Camp Scott in Chicago. He was assigned to Company C, Personnel, Automotive, and Mechanical Section. And so so for Walt, what would his responsibilities be, and what, what kind of training would he have to go through? Sure, so uh, Walt's official enlistment date was September 16th, and then, like you said, nine days later on the 25th, he reported for duty. Um, Camp Scott was this sort of temporary Red Cross training facility. It was, excuse me, it was in a neighborhood near um, the University of Chicago known as Cottage Grove. And so 
uh, Walton and Russell Mass, they reported for duty, and they were subjected to this pretty intense uh, four-week training course. They, they received automotive repair classes taught by local yellow cab mechanics. Then they received driver training, and then they had military drill instruction as well. Um, from the accounts that I've read, like I was able to find quite a few Chicago-based newspapers that actually talk about Camp Scott and some of the regimentation and some of the things that the, the, the new recruits had to go through. And, and the driver training course that Walt participated in, you know, it, it was pretty intensive. And it was unlike anything any driver would have encountered previously driving down a Chicago main street, right? There was this obstacle course for vehicles. There was this miniature no-man's land that you had to get through with your vehicle. There were gullies and 10-foot bumps, a hill that had this incline that was steeper than a staircase. And the final test, they put the vehicle in this huge shell crater, and you had to try to drive this vehicle up this incline out of the shell crater. Well, we'll passed all of that. And then on top of that, like I said, there was, there was the military drill instruction. And like I said, one of the newspaper reports that I had read, it reported that participants in the program were given as much military training as was formerly received in the state militia in one year. So they had, in four weeks, they had as much military training as state militiamen had in one year. So pretty wow. intense. And, you know, despite all of that, despite this... this really wicked sort of crazy obstacle course for driving all of this military regimentation you know learning how to take apart an engine and work on magnetos and you know do truck repairs and that you know despite all of that he passed he passed with flying colors and he didn't he didn't have any problems whatsoever and Walt apparently he liked the process he he liked the regimentation he liked the training that he was going through and he, he passed with flying colors Wow, that that's intense for a sixteen-year-old. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and, and you think you know, you know, how much time? Like, and I've never been able to discover, like, how much time did Walt have driving a vehicle prior to going through this huge obstacle course? You know, yeah, he drove he drove a a, a post office truck around the city, but more times than not, he was driving the horse and buggy. So yeah, and you know, Elias wouldn't have had a car to let him drive. I've never read anywhere where his family had a car that he was allowed to drive. So he would have had very basic rudimentary driving skills to be thrown in this obstacle course. And he actually said in the Pete Martin interview, you know, if you don't pass this driving course, you were washed out and you weren't a driver and that diminished your chances of, of, of getting in with the Red Cross. And, you know, if you did get in after you washed out, yeah, you were made a, a helper. You know, you were the swamper in the truck, and, you know, who wants to be a swamper? You want to be the driver, right? Mm -hmm. But, yeah, like you said, he was, he was only 16 years old. You know, I, I can't imagine any 16-year-old today, you know, you know, having a breeze getting through that type of a thing. It's hard enough to learn how to drive today, let alone back then, you know. Yeah, plus, plus a year's worth of, of military training in four weeks, militia training in, in four weeks. <laughs> yeah, and, and you got you got to think that, you know, you're trying to concentrate on driving skills and you're learning how to do the mechanic stuff, and yeah, now you've got this military regimentation on top of that, and, you know, who, who knows how, really, how grueling and, and brutal that type of regimentation was as well, right? But, yeah. You know, at the end of the day, Walt, Walt thrived on it, he loved it, and, and he was successful. So. 
And and then Maul completed his training and was transported to the East Coast where he and, and you have this great little just this tiny little story that I I enjoyed. I don't know why. He came across another young volunteer. Um we've probably all eaten his hamburgers. And and he had an interesting um he had some interesting memories of Walt Disney at that time. Can you yeah, can you tell was, us about that? Yeah, that that was Ray Kroc who who went on to uh you know start up the McDonald's hamburger chain. And um, when when Walt was trying, we, we sort of jumped ahead here because Walt had a little little bout with influenza there. But um, when Walt was transferred to the East Coast, Ray Kroc, who started up the McDonald's hamburger chain, he was he was in the unit, the new unit that Walt was assigned to. And in his autobiography, Kroc said he faced the actually he faced the same problems that Walt had when he had tried to enlist in the Red Cross. His, his parents objected vehemently, and he was underage as well. Um, but in his autobiography, Croc said that Walt was regarded as a sort of a, he called him a strange duck, because whenever everyone else had time off, they all, you know, they all headed into downtown Chicago and, and partied the night away while Walt stayed back at camp and created artwork. So, you know, Croc thought, well, this is Croc and the other guys in the unit thought, well, this is really weird. He's, he's more interested in, in drawing than he is in, uh, you know, going out and partying. <laughs> so already we see um, Walt's personality coming through at a young age. Oh, you know, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. Now, Walt and his fellow volunteers underwent further training in Connecticut, and then uh, they received some news that must have been a bit bittersweet for them, that the armistice was signed on November 11th, 1918, ending the war. So it to Walt, he must have thought, that his opportunity to serve had ended before it had begun. True. Um, if I can just backstep a little bit, because there's a little bit of a twist in the story. So mm-hmm. when Walt was still in Chicago at Camp Scott, he came down with what was called the Spanish flu. And that influenza virus, it killed about 20 million. Estimates range anywhere from 20 million to 60 million. But on the low side of the number, that flu killed over 20 million people around the world. And Walt started to exhibit symptoms. And so um, the ambulance crew came and picked him up, and they said, you know, kid, do you live in Chicago? Because if you live in Chicago, we'd rather take you home than take you to the hospital, because if we take you to the hospital, you're probably going to die, because so many people are in the hospital with the flu, your chances of survival will be slim to none. So Walt said, yeah, he lived in Chicago, so they, the ambulance attendants took him home. Um, his mother had a doctor come in, and Walt was given an anti-malarial medication that brought his fever down. Um, at the same time, his mom and his sister also came down the flu, came down with the flu, but luckily all three survived, and, and they credit it to this doctor that came in and gave him, I think it's called quinine, something like that. It's an anti-malarial medication, so that, you know, that helped Walt survive this bout of Spanish flu. And so because Walt was taken away from Camp Scott while he was recovering from the flu, the day before he returned to Camp Scott, his Red Cross unit shipped out to Camp King near Sound Beach, Connecticut, for overseas deployment. So when Walt returned to Camp Scott, he was heartbroken because he, he missed the deployment. So, you know, he, he's getting all these things thrown at him. You know, you know initially, when, when he tried, the, the Navy wasn't accepting any more recruits, so he couldn't get in that way. The Army didn't want him, so he couldn't get in that way. Um, and then, you know, the Red Cross, he had to be 17. Well, he was only 16. So these obstacles keep getting thrown into his path, right? And now the, he gets the Spanish flu, and while he's recovering, his unit ships out. So, 
you know, he, he, he returns to Camp Scott. He's really depressed. Uh, you know, he's missed the deployment. The good news is he's assigned to another Red Cross company, and they were dispatched pretty much the same day to Connecticut for deployment. So they're following in the footsteps of his original unit. And uh, like you said, you know, the kid can't catch a break because <laughs> shortly after he arrives, oh, the war's over. <laughs> so, you know, the, the dream is dashed again. And, you know, you got to think for a while, he, he, he's, this adversity, like I say, it keeps getting thrown into his way. And, um, you know, the end of the war, it's a good thing, right, considering all the carnage and death that had resulted. But for Walt, the news was devastating. So the end of the war, voluntary enlistment, the draft, it all comes to an end. Uh, home front organizations like the Salvation Army, the Red Cross, they're discharging their volunteers because they don't need them anymore. Um, the Chicago Tribune reported that because the war was officially over, there was going to be like a thousand Red Cross drivers and mechanics that were going to be let go. That included the 700 that were um, at Camp Scott in Chicago, and it included 300 that were, I'm sorry, it was Camp, Camp Scott, yeah, Camp Scott in Chicago, mm-hmm. and then the, um, the 300 that were at Camp King in Sound Beach, Connecticut, which, which Walt was part of. So now, you know, the Red Cross is saying we're going to demobilize, and guess what? Your services aren't, aren't needed anymore. So, you know, there's Walt. He, 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 he's one step closer. You know, he's on the East Coast, and, you know, you can see the Atlantic Ocean pretty much. And, uh, yeah, you're not going over, kid, because the war's over. <laughs> but, but everything changed the next day again for Walt. Yeah, you know, this guy's got more lives than a, than a cat, right? So, <laughs> you know, another opportunity comes his way. November 12th, the day after the armistice is signed. You know, uh, the guys at Camp King, you know, they're dejected. They're so close to getting over. They thought they'd missed this glorious opportunity. And, okay, we don't need you anymore, boys. So they're moping around their barracks. They go, they go to bed, you know, on the 11th or the, I guess it was the 12th, resigned to the fact that, you know what, we're going back home to Chicago. And, you know, it's, it's sort of funny in a sense that if you discount the military industrialists, Walt and the guys that he was with were probably the only people on the planet that were disappointed the war was over, right? Mm-hmm. So they all go to bed, and then sometime in the early hours of the morning on November the 12th, this announcement wakes Walt up from bed, and all the other volunteers for that matter. And this announcement comes over the, the, the speaker system, is blaring through the building, and up everybody, up everybody, up everybody, 50 guys going to France, 50 guys going to France. And so one of Disney's buddies comes over and says, you know, hey, Diz, come on, 50 guys going to France. Let's go. Let's get in on the lottery. And, and Walt says, you know, ah, forget it. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to be one of them. You know, he rolled over and went back to sleep. And in reality, if you look at his chances, he, he had a really good chance of being selected. He had this one in six chance of being selected to go, which is a heck of a lot better than, you know, the one in 17 million odds of winning a major lottery, right? Mm-hmm. So, so Walt goes back to sleep. The names are drawn. And what do you know? his name is picked. And as he always liked to tell it, his name was the last one drawn. It was number 50. You know, Walt Disney, number 50. Well, his buddies come running back into the barracks. They wake him up. You know, oh, you lucky SOB. You're going to France. You lucky, you know, mm-hmm. expletive, you know. And, and, you know, next thing he's, oh, you know, he's on the train heading to port to, to embark for, for France. So, you know, the dream's alive again. You know, how many times is this now? But the dream is back on. So he was he was pretty excited. He was, yeah. So he sailed out of Hoboken, New Jersey for France, and he arrived 
on November 30th, 1918. So there he is, stepping, stepping onto, stepping into France. So what greeted him there? Yeah. So you know, just getting into port was an adventure. Um, his boat's initial destination was the port of Cherbourg. Um, but that port had been basically devastated during the war. There were unexploded mines in the water. There were hulks of destroyed and scuttled ships littering the harbor entrance. Um, matter of fact, when they approached harbor, you know, he said the minesweepers went out, you know, to, to try to clear a path for the boat, and they had snipers on the deck looking looking for mines floating in the water. They would, you know, try to shoot them and hit one of the detonator caps on the mine to blow it up. Um, so they had to wait at anchor for several days, and, and even at the end of the several days, they weren't allowed into the harbor at Cherbourg. And then finally, his boat was redirected to the French port of Le Havre. So on December 3rd, uh, Walt walks down the gangplank with his duffel bag over his shoulder, and he steps onto foreign soil for the first time in his life. And, you know, we can only imagine the excitement he felt after all these delays and roadblocks. Hey, he's in France. He'd made it. And so... Um, the volunteers were whisked away to this hotel. It was the Hotel Continental, which was on the boardwalk um, at the entrance to the harbor. And then they spent one night there before traveling to Paris the next day by train. And there's quite a, a funny story in the Pete Martin interviews where Walt talks about these pissoirs. I think that's how you pronounce mm-hmm. it. But he saw these this strange sight on the street, and they, they were everywhere. They were on every street. And basically what they were is they have public urinals. And they're right out on the open, and they have these little tiny screens, and you basically walk up and unzip and do your business and zip up and carry on with your walk. And, you know, it, well, the way that Walt tells the story, it's it's really funny because, you know, these these kids are walking around, and some of them are pretty burly, and, you know, they've got to go to the bathroom, but everyone's afraid to walk up to one of these things. They're really intimidated by these things. And when, then finally one of the guys says, you know, what the heck, you guys? You know, I have to go to the bathroom. So, you know you know, screw you, so to speak, excuse my language, but I've got to use this thing. So he ponies up to the thing, does his business, and then, whoa, everyone in the unit that Walt was hanging out with that day walks up to the thing and uses his public urinal. But Walt was just laughing his head off when he told the story because, you know, here are these young guys. They've never seen these things before. They didn't know how to use them. They thought, well, what a public display of uh, a private matter. But at the end of the day, they thought, you know, after they'd done their business, oh, they're, they're these big guys now. They were, they were part of French culture because they'd, they'd, use, <laughs> these public, they'd use these public urinals, right? <laughs> and now what were Walt's duties in France? So initially he was assigned to St. Cyr, where he just did some basic driving. And um, then he was assigned to evacuation hospital number five, which was on the outskirts of Paris. Um, the hospital was being um, dismantled, so he helped he helped take that hospital apart. It was basically wood-framed canvas tents for the most part. And then um, he, met, he eventually made his way to this um, Red Cross canteen in Neuf Chateau. And Neuf Chateau is about 150 miles east of Paris. And he spent most of his 10 months when he was in France, most of his time was spent at this Neuf Chateau canteen. And um, when he was in the motor pool in Paris, he played the role of this glorified taxi driver. He basically drove bigwigs around Paris. And then he also took Red Cross and military officials on, on sightseeing uh, trips out to the Vosges Mountains and around Paris. And, and then he also drove supplies from warehouses to different hospitals and canteens. 
Um, when he was at Neuf Chateau, he was on the garbage detail. He drove canteen staff to buy produce and eggs, other foodstuffs. He got cordwood. He basically he spent a lot of time as a as an errand boy. He just sort of did whatever odd jobs were needed needed to do. And there was a great story that you tell about when when Walt's friends took him out to celebrate his 17th birthday, and Walt really did get taken. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So his friends his friends treated Walt to a surprise birthday. So you know he turned 17. Uh, so what's that? December 5th, uh, mm-hmm. 1918. He turned 17 in the little town of Saint Cyr, and that's you know just shortly after his arrival, right? And so his, his, you know, newfound friends, and we'll put quotation marks around the word friends, his friends invited him out, one of his friends invited him out for a celebratory drink. Hey, you know, it's your birthday, let's, let's go have a drink. So they walk into this little bistro, and, and the bar is deserted, there's nobody there, and they sit down, they're ordering a drink, and then all of a sudden, all these guys from his outfit pop out from behind the tables and counters, and they all scream, happy birthday, happy birthday, Diz. And so they were treating him to the surprise birthday. So, you know, all these guys are, are relatively young. I would assume that they're all, you know, 17, 18, 16, 17, 18 years old. They all start to have some drinks. You know, the alcohol alcohol starts to flow. Some of the guys are drinking grenadine. Other guys are drinking cognac. The afternoon wears on. It's starting to get dark out. The crowd starts to thin. And before you know it, Disney's pretty much the last man standing. And guess what? He gets the bar tab. You know, that's the big surprise and the surprise birthday party. Here's the bill, you know, and, and, and those drinks, because of how many people were there and what they were drinking, those drinks cost Walt all of the money that he had brought home with him from France or from, from America. And then some, he was actually short. He actually had to sell, he actually had to sell his second pair of Red Cross shoes for 30 francs in order to pay the balance of the bill that he didn't have the money for. So, you know, some some surprise birthday party, right? Yeah, well, he learned a hard lesson there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now, in later years, Walt recounted a time he said he was almost court-martialed. Now, is this Walt, you know, spinning a tale? Because, you know, he always loved a good story. Or did, did he really do something that warranted, you know, a severe punishment? Yeah, no, it was it was a real story, and it was um, it was a very serious matter, and, and the Red Cross took the incident quite seriously. So, um, on one day, he was approached, and he said, "Okay, we've got you know he's he's a driver, so we've got this truck of sugar and beans. We want you to drive it to this small town uh, northeast of Paris." So, well, yeah, okay, that's great. Sounds sounds exciting. I'm I'm up for it. So he gets his truck. It's all loaded up with the supplies. He gets his orders. He gets his map of the route, and he sets out on his journey. Everything's going great, you know, he's enjoying the ride down the country roads, checking out the scenery, you know, life is good, I'm in France, yahoo, right? And then it begins to snow, and it begins to snow harder. And now it's not just this little Chicago flurry, but it's, uh, you know, it's like a Chicago snowstorm, it's this full-blown snowstorm. So he's dealing with little or no visibility, you know, treacherous road conditions, unfamiliar terrain, you know, whiteout condition, and the compound matters, his truck breaks down. So he manages to sort of baby his truck down the road a bit further, gets it off to the side of the road, and then he sees this little tiny railroad watchman's shack in the distance. And by his account, you know, the closest town was about three miles away. And the orders from the Red Cross are never leave your truck. 
sugar and beans are gold. So what he did was he sent his helper, uh, the swamper that was with him, to the train station to catch a train to Paris to get help. And so in the meantime, Walt doesn't want to abandon the truck, so he hoofs it over to this little watchman's shack. It's this little, you know, four-foot square shack with this little coal-burning stove in it, and there's a watchman in there. So Walt spends the next two nights in freezing weather in this shack with this watchman. And, you know, being the cordial type of guy, uh, you know, the trucks had food in it, so he shares his cheese and his bread and his little can, you know, can of bully beef and that with the watchman. And then Walt is, he's getting frustrated. He spent two freezing nights in the shock. There's no, no sight, sign of relief in sight. So what does he do? He decides to abandon the truck and go out for help himself. So he travels the, the approximate three miles to get into town, and he's starving, right? He's gone a couple of days out without any food, and he's freezing. So he orders some food in a room, and then he gets to the room, and it had this big, nice feather duvet. <laughs> so what does he do? He flops onto the bed, and poof, he's out. It's not just a nap. He sleeps clear through until the next afternoon. He wakes up. He's in a panic. He runs down to where the truck was, and guess what? The truck isn't there. So he panics. He knows, oh, my gosh, you know, uh, loss of the truck, serious breach of protocol, I'm going to be in big doo-doo. So he goes to the watchman in the shack, and they're trying to communicate. You know, Walt doesn't speak French, the watchman doesn't speak English, and he's going, you know, the watchman's going, you know, come, take truck, take truck, go, toot sweet, go. So Walt's distraught. You know, the truck's been taken. Oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm doomed. So he goes to the train station in that little town. He catches the next freight train out of town, um, intent on reaching uh, the Red Cross headquarters in Paris as quickly as possible. He gets to Paris, reports to his supervisors. They already know what's happened. They already know that he's abandoned his truck. And now he faces his future, court-martial. Court-martial for abandoning the truck and its valuable cargo. And Walt's going, what the heck? You know, Red Cross, you know, they're not the most strict uh, uh, organization in the world. Can you imagine being court-martialed and being drummed out of the Red Cross? Like, how, how's that going to look to my future grandkids, right? Yeah, I served in the Great War, but mm, I was court-martialed from the Red Cross, right? So he's frantic. Well, it turns out that the helper got to Paris all right, but when he got to Paris, he decided to go on a drinking binge. Instead of reporting what had happened with the truck and the problem, he went out and got drunk. And so, you know, a couple of days later, when help arrived, when the helper was able to communicate what had happened, help arrives, and Walt's not there. So senior Red Cross officials wanted to charge him with dereliction of duty, but he had made friends with this sergeant from the evacuation hospital number five outside of Paris that he had served at. He met up with the sergeant, and the sergeant basically acted as his lawyer, and the sergeant was able to convince the Red Cross that, Walt had done everything in his power, and, and Walt was, was absolved of any wrongdoing. Well, the helper, who had run off on the drinking binge, he was actually court-martialed. But they, they decided, you know what, Walt had done everything in his power. He had stayed with the truck for two freezing nights, and then, you know, when he was on the brink of exhaustion and, and you know, freezing to death, he, he went into town, and through no fault of his own, you know, he, he, he fell asleep. So at the end of the day, he was absolved of, of any criminal wrongdoing, but he was quite worried about that because it was something that the Red Cross was taking very, very seriously. So. Wow, what a great story. Yeah, so, that's amazing. And, you know, he's only 17 years old, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, he, he kept his wits about him. 17? 
that that's yeah, pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And uh, Walt had some other interesting stories. I mean, he proved to be quite the entrepreneur uh, with some interesting side jobs that enabled him to earn some extra money to send home to his mother. Uh, he, he he certainly put his artistic talent to good use, didn't he? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, he one of the things he did at the canteen uh, that he wrote about or that he, he told Pete Martin about was that he designed canteen posters. So he would he would do up posters, you know, advertising hot chocolate and hot showers because Neuf Chateau was actually sort of a rail hub. And, and what had happened was American troop trains would go through Neuf Chateau and the French would change out the engines and then the train of troops would be pulled into Germany where they served occupation duty after the war. So Walt, as we know, was an artist, right? So what he started to do was he got this idea. He saw they had this little janitor, I think it was, at the Red Cross canteen, this little French guy, and he had this French medal on his chest, a croix de, a croix de guerre. And so Walt thought, well, you know what? I could paint that on my leather windbreaker jacket. You know, everyone's got these leather windbreaker jackets. Maybe I could make a racket out of this. So he paints one on his jacket, and everyone goes, oh, my gosh, this thing looks fantastic. You know, from a distance, it actually looks like you were presented with this medal. So now everybody that he ran into, everybody in the unit that he was with, they wanted one of these croix de guerres painted on their windbreakers. So he was earning 10 French francs for every one of these fake medals that he painted onto people's windbreakers. (laughs) And then he started to paint camouflage patterns on footlockers for some of the guys, and he got paid to do that. Well, while he was painting one of these camel schemes on a footlocker, a co-worker who we know only by the name of the Georgia Cracker, he saw Walt painting one of these footlockers, and he said to Walt, you know, here's this helmet. Can you reproduce this color scheme on this helmet I have here? And so Walt went ahead and did it. Well, what Walt had done was he had just created a forged German sniper's helmet. And so what they did was the Cracker then presented this proposal to Walt and said, you know, why don't we form a partnership? We'll go out and gather up this war material on the battlefield. It's all been abandoned. And you paint these color schemes on these helmets. And then when the troop trains come through and while the guys are waiting for their engine to be changed out, I'll get on the train and I'll sell these sniper helmets and we'll split, split the profit. And so that's exactly what they did. So Disney painted these color schemes on these helmets in this sniper camouflage pattern. The cracker then took them outside when they dried up, kicked them around in the dirt, shot a bullet hole in them, <laughs> put some you know, pig's blood or chicken blood and a little, little bit of plug of hair into the hole to make them look authentic. And then he took the doctored helmets and sold them to these you know, souvenir-hungry soldiers who were passing through Neufchateau on the way, on the way to, to Germany. And... Um, Walt said, you know, Cracker was pretty smart. He only ever took one helmet at a time onto the train, and that drove the price sky high. And it was, you know, Walt said it was quite a rocket, and the soldiers on the trains went into this frenzy when the Cracker produced this sniper helmet. And it's actually interesting because I've often wondered, like I'm, I'm a member because of my interest in World War II history. I'm, I'm a member of this U.S. military website and, you know, they post pictures of stuff out of their collections. And I've often wondered, you know, how many of these German World War I sniper helmets exist and how many were bought in this little French town of Neufchateau and were brought back to the United States and how many of them could be attributed to Walt Disney. Like, they could, might have you... Disney art, original Disney art, and not even know it. 
Exactly, and that's what I'm thinking. It's like, you know, there could be a dozen, two dozen, three dozen, four dozen of these things out there. You know, like what a collectible that would, that would, that would be to, to get into your collection. Now, unfortunately, how do you prove provenance, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, but still, can you, can you imagine getting one of these doctored World War I German sniper helmets into your collection? Like, like what a showpiece that would be, right? Yeah, really. That's great. And, and, and then what the plus was, Walt sent this money home for his mother to save, and he'd use this money um, after he returned home to launch the Laughogram studio. Exactly. Exactly. You know that that provided that provided the seed money for him. So, so what he did was, and and you know, he actually sent a lot of money home to his mother. And what he would do is he would use the local American Express office, and he he'd send home money orders. And so he had the money from his share of the souvenirs, and then he said he sent home when he was a a private, a lower rank. He was making forty dollars a month, and then that got bumped up to about fifty-two bucks a month when he earned his sergeant stripes. So he sent home half of that money every month to his mom. And then he he played a crops game one night, a dice game, and he walked away with 300 bucks. And so he <laughs> sent most of that money home as well. And he, he sent his mom a note saying, you know, basically um, buy my sister, you know, buy sister Ruth a watch with some of the money and then bank the rest. And then Walt said in the, in the Pete Martin interviews, you know, when he got home, he had about 600 bucks in the bank. And like you said, that was the seed money that he used to, to get laughograms up and running when, when he returned home. Yeah, that's great. And and so not only you know did Walt establish his creative ability there in France, he also uh, got a reputation as being an excellent tour guide. And so how did that come about? Well, um, you know, he was a storyteller, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he had this sponge-like memory. Um, as we saw later in life, he could remember everything. You know, he could go to a meeting and somebody would make a side comment and then we'll read, you know, 10 years later, he'll bring that up in conversation with the, peop- with the person that made that side comment, right? So he, he, was, he had this just incredible memory for detail and he was inquisitive. You know, he was, he was always questioning things or learning about things or wanting to know about things. So, you know, here he was in France, surrounded by hundreds of years' worth of history, Everywhere you turn around, you know, Gothic churches and villages and artwork and statuary and, you know, so much of that. So I think, you know, knowing what we know about Walt, I think he really enjoyed being in France and seeing all of these historic sites and experiencing the French culture, the language, the food, the history. And and we know later on in life, how much he loved taking world leaders on tours of Disneyland when they came, like, you know, he'd spend the whole day with the, with the King of Thailand or the Shah of Iran or, you know, everybody but Khrushchev, right? You know, everybody <laughs> that, came, that came to the United States who was anybody got a tour of Disneyland, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I just think that that was just part of his natural-born talent of being a storyteller that, you know, he really enjoyed learning about the sights and the sounds and the culture and that, you know, that just was part of his personality and and you know that reputation he got was just because he enjoyed it so much you know mm-hmm. now how long did walt remain in france uh, after the armistice was signed yeah so walt was uh walt was in france for about 10 months um he requested a discharge about august the 7th um he just said that he wanted to be sent home as soon as possible um i think he was getting a little bit homesick 
Um, in a letter home, he initially wrote that he was thinking about uh, signing up to serve in Albania because there was a war, I guess a civil war going on in Albania, but then he decided against it. So what he did was he put in for his discharge, and then he met up with Russell Mass in Paris, you know, his buddy that, you know, the two of them signed up together in Chicago, right? Mm-hmm. So he meets Russell Mass in Paris, and, and Walt had acquired a German Shepherd puppy by that point in time, and he gave Mass the puppy, and he said, you know, take it home, and then when we get home, when I get home, you know, we'll float down the Mississippi River like we said we were going to do, and we'll just have another adventure, you know, when I come home, we'll get together and, and, and go on this next adventure that they want, he wanted to do. So, um, Mass left before Walt, and it turns out, unfortunately, that the dog died on the voyage home, and then when, when Walt eventually got home, turns out that Mass had a girlfriend, and he had no interest in sailing down the Mississippi on a, on a steamer with Walt, so... But anyhow, uh, Walt puts in for his discharge, and then he gets sent down to the port city of Marseille to catch a boat home. Now, unfortunately, at the time, there was this big dock strike, and um, there were some pretty ugly things that were happening. There were knifings and fights and robberies and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, the Red Cross leadership didn't know, the officials didn't know how long this dock strike was going to go on for. So what they decided to do was anyone that was in that group that was being sent home they moved the group from Marseille or Marseille to Nice, down in the French Riviera, and they were put up in this luxury hotel. And Diane, his daughter, said that you know her father used to take this short rail trip or tram down into Mont- Monte Carlo, where he'd hang out for the day. You know, so so talk about talk about the good <laughs> the good life, right? He, he got to spend. <laughs> I think it was a couple of weeks. He got to spend down in the French Riviera, and then uh, later that month. Um, so that would have been August, September, I guess it was September. Um, he was put on a, a passenger liner called the SS Canada, and he was back in America on October the 9th. He was officially discharged on the 10th, and then he was back in Chicago on the 11th. Great, and that then so ended his his service in World War One. You know, you tell... A, a, a wonderful story about a lasting friendship that he had with a woman he met in France during world during the war, um, Alice Howell. Um, how did they meet? And what prompted them to maintain their friendship for so long after the war? Yeah. So what's what's interesting about my book is I was able to locate a thesis that had written been written by a fellow named Alan Nielsen. Alan Nielsen went to the University of uh, University of Nebraska um, in Lincoln, Nebraska. And he wrote this thesis on Alice Howell. And I was able to track down Alan, and he sent me a copy of his thesis and because I wanted this background information about Alice Howell. And it turns out that Alan Nielsen had located 60 letters that had been exchanged between Walt and Alice Howell. And to my knowledge, these letters had never appeared in a Disney publication before. So through Alan, I was able to track down these letters. And it, it's a really interesting story. So Alice Howell was the matriarch of the Red Cross Canteen at Neuf Chateau. And like I mentioned earlier, Neuf Chateau was where Walt spent most of his time in France. That's the canteen that he spent most of his 10 months ten month serving out of. Now, Walt and Howell were sort of these um, kindred spirits. You know, they were both interested in the arts. They were both performers, right? You know, Walt had gotten dressed up as Abraham Lincoln when he was a kid. You know, he'd done his little vaudeville show. 
Um, you know, he liked to he liked to draw. Well, Howell liked to act on stage. And then Howell was also the head of the dramatic arts department at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. When she was 20-odd years old, she took over that program, and she expanded it from a two-year to a three-year program, and then she was responsible for getting this big theater built. They wouldn't let the theater that she wanted to build be built on university property because the Rockefeller family was, was funding it, and everybody viewed the Rockefeller money as, for some reason, dirty money. So they had to build the theater across the street from the university campus. But anyhow, she headed up the dramatic arts department. Um, She was a lot older than Walt. She was like 44 years old. So besides the artistic connection, I think Walt perhaps looked up to her as a surrogate mother because, you know, when he was in France. Um, And she was a great cook. She she had this reputation of making donuts. Mm -hmm. Um, So they sort of started up this friendship, and they they became quite, quite close. Um, a couple of the interesting stories related to Howell and the Red Cross Canteen, um, one of the highlights of Walt's service there was the fact that Howell was friends with General Black Jack Pershing's sister, who was named May. Now, Pershing was the commander of all the American troops that were in France. Pershing had a 10-year-old son whose name was Warren, and Warren came over to France to visit his dad, Right. Now, Warren was sent to Neufchateau to visit Howell because Howell had the family connection. Howell was friends with Pershing's sister, May. And so when, when Warren shows up at the, at the canteen, Howell had this big picnic um, arranged. And so basically, Walt was the one that drove Warren in this big locomobile, as Walt called it, up to Do-Re-Mi. So Do-Re-Mi was the birthplace of Joan of Arc. So Walt said he's driving the locomobile, and he let, he let Warren step on the gas and, and the brake pedal as they were driving the car. And so that was really a highlight for Walt. He was able to chauffeur the general's son up to Do-Re-Mi. And what's really sort of cool about that was Walt, um, after the war, Pershing wrote a biography, a two-volume biography about, about the war and his, his time there. And through um, Howell, Walt was able to get a signed copy by Pershing of those books. But Walt had these really, you know, Walt had this fond memory of, of driving the general's son, you know, up to Do-Re-Mi for this picnic lunch that, that consisted of fried chicken. And, you know, it was just, it was a great time and a great memory for him. Um, after the war, they sort of went their separate ways. And um, they ended up rekindling their friendship in, it was October of 1931. Um, she wrote him a letter and referred to him in the letter as her dear fellow at arms. And Walt was actually away on vacation at the time with Lillian. Walt, at that time, that's when Walt had his nervous breakdown, and his doctor ordered him to go on vacation. And so Walt and Lillian, they went to Kansas City, then they went to Washington, D.C., then they went down to Florida, then they went to Cuba, and then they came back on a cruise through the Panama Canal. So Walt didn't respond to Howell until the end of December, and then when he responded, that just rekindled their friendship, and the two became fast friends again, and like I said, they exchanged around 60 letters, and I was able to locate through Alan Nielsen, like I mentioned earlier, all of those letters, and it was really cool because I made Diane copies of those letters. I said, hey, have you ever seen these letters that your dad exchanged with this lady at the canteen? And she said, no. And so I I made photocopies of them all, and then I transcribed them, because Howell's writing was very cursive, and it was very hard to read. And so I transcribed all the letters, and I sent them to her, and 
and she just sent me this, you know, one one word email, you know, got them, thanks very much, and that was the end of it. And I thought, oh, you know, I was sort of hoping for some sort of reaction or her thoughts about mm-hmm. it. But what was really cool was about a month later, she sent me a beautiful letter saying, you know, I finally had the chance to read the, the letters. I brought them with me on our vacation in Hawaii, and I, you know, I, I sat on the the, what did they call it there, the Lahani, or I can't remember the name of it, the, the breezeway. You know, she sat on the breezeway and she read the letters and she was just really grateful because she had never seen them before. So it's really cool because I quote uh, a lot of the content in those letters in, in the book. Um, it ended up that Howell actually visited Walt in July of 1939. She was on vacation in California. So she showed up at the studio at Walt's invitation. Walt gave her a tour of the studio. She had a private showing of clips from Pinocchio, Bambi. She had dinner with Walt and his family at their home in Los Feliz, just up, up the road from the Hyperion studio, uh, the old Hyperion studio. And then uh, Walt and Lillian actually took her to the Hollywood Bowl for a show as well. And then what she did later that year in December as a birthday present, which I thought was really cool, she sent Walt the American flag that had flown over the Neuf Chateau canteen. She sent him the flag as a birthday present. And that's the flag mm-hmm. that's currently on display at the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco. It's that huge right. flag that's behind the ambulance. Well, that was the flag that she gave to Walt Disney in December of 39. And, and Walt's daughter, Diane, told me that, you know, she was at the door when the flag was delivered and her dad was her dad you know her dad knew it was coming because she had said in a letter that she was going to send it to him as a birthday present and when it arrived Diane said you know her dad was very excited and became quite emotional and it, it you know that flag really really meant a lot to him and it's interesting because in 1942 Diane and her sister Sharon took that flag out of storage at their home and they draped it over the staircase banister in the front hall the staircase banister in the front hall so when Walt their dad came home it was draped over the over the banister and it was on his birthday and you know she said again he was very emotional he became very emotional he was he was very happy and touched with you know that that sentiment that the the, the girls had done for him um, Walton, Walton Howell maintained their friendship up until she passed away and I believe if I recall correctly she passed away in 43 um, she had a stroke and she passed away uh, a couple of days after her stroke. But, you know, reading these letters, you can really tell that they enjoyed writing to one another and they enjoyed their friendship and they, they enjoyed, you know, there's many, many memories that I write about in the book that, that the two of them were, were involved with and that he was involved with at the canteen. So it, it's, it really is an interesting story how the two of them, you know, rekindled that friendship in 31 and it lasted until she passed away in, in 1943. Mm-hmm. And what I really love, it's very touching, and I know this is something Walt routinely did. He would send her large parcels filled with toys and and stuffed animals, so that she would then distribute them to, um, you know, children's agencies and yeah, things. Exactly. Children that did, and, and it was wonderful. Yeah, she she was a very giving person as well. You know, Walt Walt was very generous when it came came to things like that, and she was as well. And it's quite interesting because, you know, Walt would send her drawings from the latest cartoons. He would send her dolls. And, you know, she would keep a few of the items, but most of it she gave away. What's really interesting, in one of the letters she wrote to Walt and said, you know, my house, I'm redecorating my house. I've got a professional decorator that's come in. And, you know, I've, I've given him this huge... Um, 
selection of artwork that he can put up. You know, there are prints that I picked up in my travels in Europe and, you know, other pieces of artwork I've picked up here and there. And you know what he did? The interior decorator picked out all the animation drawings that you had sent to me. <laughs> he he forego, he forewent all of these, you know, fancy schmancy pieces of artwork and went with the animation drawings. Um, what's really interesting was when she passed away, her estate was was scattered and some of the people apparently that were promised things never got things and one of the things that Walt Disney had sent to her was a Mickey Mouse doll and he had written uh, a salutation on the doll's foot in French and that doll actually surfaced recently and was sold at auction probably about a year or so ago and if yeah if I'd had the money you know knowing the history behind it because when they when the doll came up for auction they didn't include too much of the backstory behind the piece which I thought was a little disappointing I don't know maybe he didn't know it or he just didn't want to bother to put it in the auction listing but I thought you know if I'd had the cash I would have I would have tried to have, have gotten that piece just because of the history behind it but I think it sold for I'm guessing now, but I think it was it was over ten grand. It was ten grand, fifteen grand, something like that. Wow. But you know what a cool piece of history. You know the Mickey Mouse doll that Walt had sent to this lady who was the you know the former head of this this canteen that he had served at while in France. Like what a, what a great piece of history that yeah. would have been. Yeah, yeah, one of those Charlotte Clark dolls signed by Walt Disney. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, with, with the world with the World War One connection to it. Right? Yeah. Now, did uh, when Walt told these stories, Peter Martin, and, and as he reflected in later years on on his service in World War One, did Walt ever talk about how his experience affected him personally? Yeah, he did. You know, um, I think I think Walt always looked back fondly on the time that he had spent overseas. Um, you know, that was an important chapter in his life. Um, he told Pete Martin that he had this lifetime wrapped up in experience and, and that being in France was such a valuable thing um, for him to have experienced. Um, I think Walt really matured when he went to France. You know, you, you see these photos of him posing in a studio with his buddy Russell Mass in their Red Cross uniforms before they're, they're deployed, right? You know, they're, they're freshly minted uniforms. And, and to be frank, he looks like this this little naive, forlorn, little 16-year-old kid, you know, this really, really young-looking teenager. And, you know, he, and, and of course, it's true because he was only 16, so that's why he looks like a really young teenager. But when you compare that picture with these pictures of him back at home shortly after he, he returned from France, or you look at some of the pictures that were taken in France, and, like, he physically matured. He's now this tall, strapping young man. He's only a year older, but his physical appearance changed so much. And I think that it wasn't just physically he matured. He matured emotionally and mentally as well. You know, you think the time he spent away from home, he had left everything that was comfortable for him, his family, his job. And I think being in France it led to this development of an even more independent streak. Now, you know, we know that Walt already had that streak to some degree, but I think his overseas service just reinforced that independence. And Walt himself said when he returned home, he had this maturity that he had settled. 
um, that he was able to sort of line right up on an objective and, and then go for it. And I think his time in France really proved to him that he could do anything he set his mind to. And, you know, that was the viewpoint that guided him his entire life. You know, after all, look at all these obstacles that had been thrown in his path and everything that he had to overcome to get to France, his perseverance. And then, and then being in France and, and being independent and in charge of himself and, you know, making all these decisions on his own. So, so yeah, it did. I think this time in France really did have this lasting effect. And it, and it really proved to him that despite all the obstacles that get thrown at you, if you focus on something and really want something that, you know, you can make whatever that desire is, uh, in many, many instances become a reality. So, yeah, I, I think I think Walt's time in France was hugely important to him, and it and it did have this huge positive impact on his on his life and his outlook. Well, and if you would like to learn more about Walt's story during World War One and beyond, uh, I highly recommend David's book in Service of the Red Cross: Walt Disney's Early Adventures, nineteen eighteen to nineteen nineteen. And if you're thinking of a history book. That's the last thing I want to read. This is not the history book we all, the books, you know, we all read when we were in school and they were all dry and boring. I mean, these are just filled, they're filled with wonderful stories about Walt and his experiences. It, you, once you start reading it, you're just going to zip through it. It's um, David writes, in, I've, I've read all his books. He writes in a very entertaining um manners a um, very entertaining style and i think you're this is a history book you're going to really enjoy especially if you're interested in a part of walt disney's life that really um doesn't get written about and that uh, and yeah really until david started writing about it so um yeah so i, 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 I appreciate that and, you know like i said earlier what's really interesting about this book is you know when i do my writing be it the world war ii book or this book on on walt's experiences in france I don't like to rehash the same old, same old. You know, I've been researching and writing Walt Disney's history, mainly magazine articles before the books, but I've been researching and writing about Walt Disney and the history of his company since 1987. And for this book in particular, like I said, you know, I had these 60 pieces of correspondence between Walt and Alice Howell. I had um, access to a trove of postcards and photographs through Disney autograph dealer Phil Sears that Walt had sent home to um, Virginia and Beatrice, two female companions back home in Chicago. So, you know, I had, you know, Phil let me use um, all these photographs. I don't know, there, there must be six, seven, eight, nine photographs in the book that have never been published elsewhere that show Walt in his uniform in France on top of an abandoned tank, picking up a, an artillery shell in the field, uh, posing with a girl uh, down in Nice on the boardwalk, uh, walking with a French officer and a French prostitute. You know, there's a picture that he took from atop the Arc de Triomphe of the Champs-Élysées. There's another picture that he took of the miniature Eiffel Tower that was on the Grinnell um, Island. So there's a lot of information. And then on top of that, you know, the Pete Martin interviews that Diane had given me permission to use. So there's a, there's a ton of new information in this book um, that's never been published elsewhere to my knowledge. So, you know, that's sort of the style, my World War II book and this book. I like going for things that, you know, people don't already know about. Just, you know, if I can be boastful for a moment, you know, my own personal archive, I have over 6,000 magazine and newspaper articles covering 1923 to 1945 on Walt Disney history. 
6,000. So I've got this huge archive that I draw on, plus I've got tons of original press photos of Walt, plus I have audio material. So, you know, if anybody is thinking of buying my book, you know, I can guarantee that there's information in both my books that you've probably never re- read anywhere before, and mm-hmm. especially in the World War One book with the photographs of Walt that I know have never been published before. Right. Also, you have a lot of um, Walt's early um, sketches in here yeah. as well from yeah, his and, his scrapbook and, that yeah, he did. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, I was a little disappointed with the quality of the photos that appeared in the book. They're not as sharp as what I wanted to, but yes, there's, you know, Walt, when he was in, in France, he sent to uh, Virginia Baker, I think it was, a, I can't remember now, it was either Virginia Baker or Beatrice Conover, one of the two, I think it was Virginia, it was Virginia. He sent her a scrapbook of artwork that he had created while he was in France. And there's, I guess, about, uh, what is there, five pages, six pages of artwork. And it was in the scrapbook that was given out by one of the Chicago newspapers, and it was given to people going overseas. So when he was overseas, he filled this scrapbook with artwork, and it's it's probably the earliest artwork that's that's you know known to exist. Some of the earliest artwork that's known to exist. Um, one of the drawings he's got uh, an American doughboy um, kicking the Kaiser off of a cliff. Yes. You know, and a couple <laughs> of the other drawings he's got these huge trench rats. So it's it really is. Uh, just seeing that book was a it, it's quite a quite a fascinating document. So how can, what's the best way that our listeners can get a hold of your books? Sure. So they're they're for sale on Amazon, uh, both my books. So if they just go to Amazon and look up David Lestrack or the titles of my books, um, they'll find them. And they're available in both print and ebook formats. Now, I have to be honest and say the World War II book, um, I wasn't allowed permission. The, the Walt Disney Company didn't give me permission to publish any photographs in that book. So the print version of the book, the World War II book, has no photographs, but the E version of the book has 350 images. And I had actually gone so far in the print version of the book, I had included a web address for a site, a photo gallery that I had started up. It had over 350 related World War II images, um, but that was ordered taken down. So um, the only way you'll get pictures is if you buy the World War II ebook, you'll see pictures. But like I said, the print version doesn't. And then the uh, the Red Cross book, it's available in print and, and ebook version as well, and and both versions have photo, uh, all the photographs okay. in them. Great, and, and the other book is Service with Character at the Disney Studio in World War II. I have both the print and the ebook. Yeah, so, thank you. Yeah, that, that was yeah. that was a joy to write, and and um, you know, I've I've sort of it's interesting after I helped out the, the Walt Disney Family museum sort of set up their world war ii display i've sort of got into museum consulting on the side and like you you know so wonderfully stated in the introduction you know i i put on a disney war themed exhibit at a, a local museum just one city over from where i live and then the city of irvine just concluded a big exhibit they had uh, over 50 images of world war ii insignia designed by the the disney studio on display um, it included original f- photographs of the insignia being used and then uh, patches and decals and stuff like that. And then I'm in talks right now with a friend of mine, and the pair of us are, are uh, put together a proposal that we've just submitted to a major military museum in the American Midwest. So hopefully that will come to fruition because this museum is interested and it's uh, it would be a great facility to get a display into. So I've got my fingers crossed on that one. And if, if it turns out they're not interested, then I, I think I might approach the Boeing Museum 
uh, down in Seattle or perhaps the National World War II Museum in, in Louisiana to see if perhaps they'd be interested in sponsoring a, a Disney World War II themed exhibit. Oh, excellent. Uh, well, let me know when that happens. So, and, uh, and if you found this topic interesting, you'll enjoy my two-part interview from 2014 with David on the Walt Disney Studios and World War II. And so you don't have to search for these episodes in our archives. Um, Craig will be releasing them in the Connecting with Walt feed. And, and Craig, do you want to talk more about that? Yeah, they, uh, they'll show up as bonus episodes in there, uh, similar to uh, how we randomly had uh, some of our uh, recent episodes go out, like the Treasures from the Disney Vaults. So, yeah, you'll just see it magically pop up in your feed, and you'll know what it is because of the title. So I don't know if we're going to release them all on the same exact day or if we'll stagger it throughout the week so that way... You don't feel like you get too behind on your podcast, but either way, they will be available. Can I just uh, mention one more thing, Michael? Sure. Yeah, I was just going to say, if people want to, if, if people want to email me or contact me or, or have a discussion, a further discussion about any any part of, of Walt Disney history, um, I encourage people to email me. You know, I, I answer pretty much all of my emails. Um, I'm a busy guy. I've got a family, three kids, a regular job, and all this other stuff on the side. But if anybody wants to email me questions about early Walt Disney history or if they have a collectible that they they might want to sell or have some research material that they're interested in getting rid of, um, I can always be reached at WaltDisneyResearch at Yahoo.com. That's WaltDisneyResearch at Yahoo.com. I'm also the co-administrator of the Friends of the Walt Disney Family Museum Facebook group, and then I have my own Facebook group, which is called Disney and the War so if you're interested in World War II Disney history, come, you know, put in a request to join the Disney and the War Facebook group. I post a lot of pictures of my collection there, and there's uh, quite a few other people in the group that post images of their collection, and we talk about the historical significance of those items. And then I used to run two blogs, but what I've done is I've, I've got a website called HyperionAvenueArchive.com. Um, I'm in the process of amalgamating my two former blogs into that one website, and I hope to have that website up and running by uh, by Christmas time. Excellent. Yeah. Great. Well, definitely, and we will have um, links to all of those in our show notes. So, uh, thank, thank you. you. So, um, so David, thank you so much for joining us on Connecting with Walt to share the story of Walt Disney and his service in World War One. It's always a pleasure to speak with you, Michael, and I thank you very much for your continued interest. You are uh, a good friend of mine. I wish we lived closer so we could do some more socializing, and I hope that uh, whenever I can next get down to the uh, the Disney Museum in San Francisco that you and I can uh, spend some time in the museum and, and get our, uh, reacquaint our friendship. That would be wonderful. Oh, I want I want to get up to your place and see your collection. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I have I have an open door. I've got about uh, three hundred uh, Mickey Mouse items from the nineteen thirties. I have uh, somewhere between two hundred and fifty and three hundred Disney World War Two related artifacts. Uh, I've got a huge collection of original Walt Disney press photos. I have a huge archive of Hank Porter images, you know, the oh, publicity wow. uh, art department artist who did just a myriad of things for Walt. I've got over a thousand examples. Now, mind you, it's not original artwork, but I have over a thousand examples of artwork that he created while he was at the studio. So, you know what, if you ever get up to Vancouver, uh, just give me some advance notice, and I'd love to have you over to the house to share I will. stuff with you. Definitely. Thank yeah. you. 
Yeah. Oh, no, you're very welcome. So thank, thank you very much for your time, and, and uh, thank you to your listeners for, for hanging out with me tonight. It was, it was great. Absolutely. I'm sh- I, I know they found this fascinating. And, and to all who have served our country and to their families and all of us at the Disunplugged Podcast Network, sincerely thank you for your bravery and service. You and your families will be remembered by us on Veterans Day and Remembrance Day. And for our listeners who are in Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom, a very special way you can honor our active military and our military veterans is to attend the flag retreat ceremony in Town Square. So check the Times Guide for the time of the ceremony during your next visit. So that was a great interview with Disney historian and author David Leschak. It, it, it's when I read the book and I hear his stories, it just amazes me that Walt did all this when he was a 16-year-old. Yeah, no, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, the story's just fascinating. And, I mean, at least for me, it's this is a period I've always been interested in. And it's, it's, it's never glossed over in documentaries and such. But this is definitely, uh, since I haven't read any books on it, this was this was great to sit back and just hear that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just makes me realize. I, I I don't know if if Walt was an anomaly or were were young men and women just more mature back then. I, I have no idea because I definitely was nothing like Walt Disney when I was sixteen and seventeen. Yeah. I, I would definitely <laughs> say the latter of those two <laughs> options. I don't know. So. Um, but anyway, it was yeah. just a wonderful interview. Yeah, so absolutely fascinating. His he has he he of course um, contributed to the display, I, I, and we mentioned that in the introduction at the Walt Disney Family Museum uh, on the uh, Walt and World War II display, the studios yeah. at war. And before, when I was preparing years ago for the bonus episodes that we're putting up on Walt Disney World War II. Uh, we, um, I was at this, I, I was doing some prep work at the museum and I was looking at the insignias and a lot of the material that Dave, um, David had donated or, or lent, I should say, long-term mm-hmm. loan at the museum. And uh, there was some, uh, there's a couple of risque drawings by Hank Porter. No. In there, that got sent, and and you'll hear about those yeah. in the interview. And so I'm standing, and so I'm I'm just I'm looking at everything, and then um, there were also some items that the Walt Disney Family Foundation purchased for the for that particular um, display. And so I'm standing there just looking at all this, and um, and Ron Miller <laughs> walks up next to me, and he and um, we start chatting about this one particular drawing and he says you don't want to know how much that cost us <laughs> and how and and he said and you don't want to know how controversial that was that that um they the i guess the board did not want that displayed and he said but i prevailed oh wow <laughs> yeah awesome. so um so, so it's just a nice little story yeah you know, that, a little ron miller encounter yeah <laughs> which is nice <laughs> anyway well, 
Well, join us next time for our October season finale when I will talk about my travels to Tokyo, Hong Kong, and Shanghai with the Dreams Unlimited Travel um, Adventures by Disney China Tour. Yeah. Uh, did, did I find connections to Walt in those parks? Well, I will let you know. You better, or it's going to be a very short episode. <laughs> it, it will be. So, um, so Craig, until next time, where can our listeners see and hear you on the Diz Unplugged network of shows? Yeah, of course, you can find me basically every single day of the week on the, the, everything that we put up at youtube.com slash Diz Unplugged and uh, iTunes as well too, and then if you you want to get in touch with me, of course I am at Teleclaster on Twitter. Excellent, and you can find me most Sunday nights on the Disney Unplugged podcast, Disneyland Edition, with my good friends Tom Bell, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo Mulata Willie, and Tony Spatel, where we have lots of fun talking about Walt's Park that started it all, and all Southern California theme parks, the Walt Disney Family Museum, and even more Disney history. So you can download our two weekly shows from iTunes each Monday. Of course, you can listen to us live on Mixler Sundays at seven. PM Pacific Time, Disneyland Time. And if you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes, and look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. And you can send me messages at Twitter at mbowling121, Facebook, um, which is Michael Bowling, Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy.